Only light can drive away the dark. Do you believe that? Only mercy dampens hatred's spark when compassion reigns. Only love remains. Come and see. Peace is here now. Not in the world. The world does not know peace, but we know the Prince of Peace, and he brings the light. Next summer, on July the 26th, the Olympic cauldron will flame again after two years. But it's a unique event because it will be the first time in a hundred years that it has done so in the City of Light. And that city is where? Paris, France. After a two-month relay, beginning on the 8th of May, next spring, 10,000 torchbearers will run through the streets and the countryside of France, bringing the Olympic torch. It will have been lit about two and a half months earlier in April at Olympia, Greece, under the auspices of representatives of what are called the 11 Vestal Virgins. It takes place before the ruined temple of Hera, who was the, was the, uh, the consort of Zeus. What happens? Well, they play three hymns at the beginning of this event. First, they play the Olympic hymn, and then they play the anthem of the host nation, La Marseillaise for France. And then they play the Greek national anthem. And they place the torch then over a parabolic kind of mirror, and, they, and it causes the sun's rays to be intense and to light that torch. It's given to a member of the Greek Olympic squad, and then he gives it to another relay person. 500 torchbearers will carry that flame through Greece, over 1,800 miles, and then it will eventually end in France. And for three weeks, it will then be paraded through the streets of France. It reminds me of 2012. Beverly and I and Jennifer were in England, and we happened to be in Ambleside, which is in the Lake District, and we did not know that this was going to happen. It wasn't planned, but we saw a crowd gathering along the street, and we then saw the Olympic torch which had come to Britain for the London Olympics. A 10-week journey throughout England. The route was planned to crisscross and go all over the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland in such a way that it would be no further than an hour's journey for anyone to see, carried by 8,000 torch bearers over 8,000 miles. There are three cities that have hosted the Olympics three times. It's very interesting. One of those is London, and one of those will be Paris, and the third one is here in America. Where is it? Los Angeles. You see, these Olympic torchbearers run with the light. We saw two weeks ago in passage of Scripture from John 12 that we are called to do what? To walk in the light. Jesus said to them, for a little while longer the light is among you, speaking about himself. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. And in that message, what I think we discovered from Scripture was the situation is urgent today. The light of the gospel and the time of the light of the gospel is limited. Just as Jesus' time on earth was limited, the time is limited as darkness then encroaches upon the light and threatens to overtake us, 
Jesus is about to return again, so the time is limited. And he's telling us here that this is the very most important decision we will ever make. And in that passage, you heard him say two things, to believe in the light, grounded in a relationship with him as Lord and Savior, and to beware of counterfeits, because even today, there is the angel of light who causes the confusion of darkness. Jesus' purpose in telling them to believe was so that they might be freed from darkness and to come to him for eternal light. And then he also said to walk in the light, which as you heard from Jay this morning, is not just a mental decision, it's just not a moment in time, but it is a lifestyle decision which changes our whole life, our whole behavior, our whole demeanor, and we have a very clear-cut choice to make. Either we continue to walk in darkness or we choose to walk in the light. We concluded that message by making these observations. This light is offered to everyone. And we who walk in the light then are witnesses to that light, and we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We know this, that every person on the face of this globe must make that decision. For a non-decision is a decision. People who ignore the time of decision-making are making a decision, and time is urgent. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So it brings us to our message today. If we believe, and if we walk in the light, then we become light. The text is from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, three verses. Jesus said after he talked about being the salt of the earth, and after he had spoken the Beatitudes, he said, you, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill is not hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel or put it under a bowl. What do they do? They put it on a stand so that it will give light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine so that people will see your good works, see your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. Of course, the context is a Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has already described his kingdom people. He has done that in eight different ways in the Beatitudes, describing the character and the nature of kingdom people. And then he uses two metaphors to describe what those people are like, what we are like. You're the salt of the earth, and you're the light of the world. What Jesus is about to do then in the rest of the sermon, you know, he is going to then explain how those kingdom people behave. They are to keep the law, to keep all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the commandments, and anyone who breaks the least of one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same is called, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps the commands and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he unfolds that in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount before he comes to the end in chapter 7, showing how to fulfill all righteousness. And he concludes that part of the sermon by wrapping it up and saying, bottom line, it boils down to this. Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. That's the context of the message today. There are some parallel passages, one in Mark and two in Luke. After the parable of the sower, there's an end times sort of feel to what Jesus says when he uses this passage in Mark 4 and Luke 8. There he says this, Now no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container, with a bushel, or with a bowl. 
or does he put it under a bed? But he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. And then he says this, you see, for, for nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. And there he is talking about the judgment. And as he's walking to Jerusalem on the road south, later in Luke, after he rebukes the crowd for always seeking a sign, and just before he once again preaches part of his Sermon on the Mount about the eye being the light of the body, he says this, no one after lighting a lamp puts it under a cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. There are four assumptions I'd like for us to look at before we actually kind of unpack this verse, I think because it sets the context for what Jesus is saying. We find this from other passages of Scripture. The first assumption is this, obedient following. When, when we listen to the command and we do what Jesus says and we walk in the light, we both walk in his light and we believe in the light in such a way that our eyes become good, and our body is filled with light. That's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. So the first assumption is obedient following then causes us to be filled with his light. The second is this. We are then called to transformative living. When we commit ourselves to Christ as Lord and Savior, and we do this genuinely, we are changed. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. You see, we then become light. We move from the darkness into the light. Paul tells the Ephesians, for at one time you were darkness. He doesn't say you were in darkness. He said you were darkness. Your eyes were bad, Jesus said, and you were filled with darkness. And Paul says, however, but now you are light in the Lord. You see, we're called to walk as light bearers. We're called to walk and even run as torchbearers in a dark world. He tells the Philippians, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You see the darkness is all around among whom you appear as lights in the world. We are called to be Olympians. We're called to bear the torch in the highways and the byways and the streets all across this nation, just as those torchbearers will run all across France. There's a third assumption, and that is that we're relying not on our own light, but we're relying on God's indestructible light. You know, we sing that song, this little light of mine, I'm going to what? I'm going to let it shine. And that is quaint. It's nice, but it's not accurate according to Scripture. It's not this little light of mine. When we are transformed and we become the light of the world and Jesus inhabits us, it is His great light. It is His great light that dwells in us. You see, Jesus is still the light of the world. He just calls us to be torchbearers on His behalf. It is not our light. It is His light. It is the eternal light that is within us. And we need to be reminded what is said in the prologue of the Gospel of John. Light came into the world... And darkness tried, evil struggled, and tried to overcome it. But we're given this promise, it never has and it never will. You see, the light that we have in us is God's indestructible light. And that third assumption is very important. The fourth assumption is, then we're connected to the source of all power. You see, His light 
is not static. His light is dynamic. His light is relational. There is a spiritual current that runs through you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today. It is the divine power of God that courses through your body and through your spirit and your whole being. And through Christ, we're connected. We're connected by the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms us. Through Christ, we're connected with whom? With whom are we connected? Well, we say God, but what do we mean when we say that? We're connected with the Father. This is radical. This is a new radical statement in the new covenant. We have the privilege of becoming kingdom people like Israel, but we have an even greater privilege. We come to know him as father, which is rarely mentioned in the old covenant. But it's mentioned here for the first time in the gospel in this sermon. He speaks of the father, and Matthew uses it 44 times. Jesus speaks about the fatherhood of God in the Sermon on the Mount 16 times. What's happening here? Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who stood, sat on that mountain, and he preached this sermon, then has done something for us. He has connected us with God the Father of all creation. You see, through the presence of the Holy Spirit that abides in you if you're a Christ follower, if Christ dwells in you that way, he brings the power of heaven from above and transforms it and brings it to energize you to do mighty things. In fact, he says to do even greater things than he did. It's not just this little light of mine. It's God's eternal light. And we're adopted into the family of God. We're permanently changed. We are no longer orphans. We become the father's children. And Paul tells the Thessalonians then, we're no longer in darkness. We're no longer in night. We become children of the light. We become children of the day. John tells us, as we saw last week, that this means that we are to believe and to talk in the light. And Paul tells the Ephesians, the consequences of this is that we must continue to walk as children. We walk as children of God. We walk as children of the Father, as as adopted children now in his light. We're part of the family of God. Those four assumptions, I think, are very important as we look at what the text says. Then he says what? Let your light shine in such a way. The command from verse 16 puts it that way. Let your light shine before men in such a way, before people in such a way. There's a problem with this verb, though. It's very difficult to translate because, you see, it's a third-person imperative. When I say to you, do this, that's second person. When I say you, it's second person. But he uses a third person here. What's he doing? Jesus is really commanding the light. He's commanding the light to shine. The the text really looks like this. So in such a way, shine, light, your. And he adds the your at the end. You see, this isn't a second person command to the disciples so much as it is describing the nature of God's light itself. What I mean by that is, it's more about the nature of light in us than it is about our controlling it. We still have a role to play. But you see, what happens is the light is within us begging to come out. It's about the light. When I look at this text, I think there are a couple of ways it might be translated accurately. And one is the traditional way. So let your light shine. The problem with that translation is it makes it then a second person imperative. Uh, And that's about as good as we think that we can do. 
It suggests that somehow we regulate the light. Somehow we control the light. There's a problem with that, though. We don't. We might inhibit it. But we have this surging power of God's light in us that is desiring to burst forth. I think there's a better translation. It comes out of the, today's English version. And it said, your light must shine. It reminds us that God's supernatural power is in us, eagerly waiting to break out. It's not some kind of dormant human energy that we control, that we choose to turn on or to turn off. No, our role is this. Don't hinder the Spirit. Get out of the way and let the Spirit of God work through you. Let Him burst forth. Let Him work powerfully through you. Hmm. So how do we shine in such a way? It refers to the two metaphors beforehand. There's a city, and it's set on a hill. It's not hidden. City lights in a city like Fort Worth illumine the streets so that people can go about their business in the evening and feel safe, to live safely. But they also serve another purpose. Collectively, and from a distance you see those lights collectively, they are like a beacon. And in the olden days, the city was surrounded by a wall. It was safe within those walls. Pilgrims moving from one town to the next could see the light, and they could see the refuge of safety. You see, that's what he's talking about here. Paris is the city of light. It was the, one of the first cities in Europe to have street lights. The Eiffel Tower itself has 25 miles of 200,000 bulbs on it, but that's not what they mean by the city of light. Paris was a center of the Enlightenment and was the throne place of Louis XIV, the Sun King. Hong Kong, the lights of Hong Kong burn a thousand times brighter than any other city on an international average. You know what the brightest place on the face of the earth is. You probably read it in National Geographic. It's out in the desert in Nevada. What is it? The Las Vegas Strip the brightest spot on earth with 10 million lights. From a distance, you see, Jesus is saying, you can see a city, you can see there's a habitation place. You can see that there, I'm not saying that Las Vegas is a safe place, okay? <laughs> but you get the point. He uses another metaphor, and that's the lampstand. What he's talking about here is the Old Testament lampstand, like, like the menorah. The, the menorah, remember, is shaped like a tree. It symbolizes the tree of life. It represents God's perpetual life amongst the Israelites, amongst his people, with a promise of eternal life never to be extinguished. It was never to go out. Practically, the use of the lampstand in the holy place was so that the priests could do their work when it was dark. You see, this metaphor has a practical use here, and it's obvious. Our purpose is to be lampstands. Our purpose is not to have people look at us. It's to project the light and to illumine everything else. You see, our purpose is not to attract people to look at us. When you walked into this room, the light was illuminating from the chandeliers. The light was illuminating through the translucent windows. And at dark, it gets pretty dark in here. But if we came in here at night, the lights would be on. The first thing that you would do isn't come in and stare at the lights. That's not the purpose of the lights. You would look at the people that are in here. You would see what your purpose is here. You would come in here to worship. But how many of y'all stared at the lights when you came in here? That's not the purpose of the lights, you see. And that's the same with us, folks. We are not called to be gilt-edged chandeliers. We're not called for people to admire us as lampstands. 
We're called to do what? To lift up the light and to project God's light, Jesus Christ, who offers eternal light and life. You see, we're basically God's utility company. We're his power agents. We don't generate the light. That comes through Christ, generating it through his Holy Spirit in us. We are the conduit. We are the circuit through which divine activity flows. We're plugged in, actively connected to him as the source. We're empowered by the transformer. And who is the transformer? Who is it that takes the power of God and transforms it in us and makes it usable to other people? It is the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We're plugged into Christ. The Holy Spirit is the transformer. And then we are focused. We should be focused like a laser beam to point people to Christ. Aimed at accomplishing His will. It reminds me that recently in the past four or five years, the Army has decided to do something, the United States Army has decided to do something about the problem of drones, which have become very, very effective in attacks, not only against our enemy, but against us. And they have begun to mount laser units on armored track vehicles, and they shoot out bullets, but they're not metal bullets. They're not lead bullets. They're bullets of light, and they're just as deadly in taking down drones. You see, that's what we are to do. We are to take down powers and principalities that are in the darkness by shooting the laser beam of God's light. You see, this is more than just being a reflection. You know, I, know, I know we hear that analogy. Well, I'm, I'm supposed to reflect God. And, and, and to some degree, that's true. But folks, the moon reflects the light of the sun, but it produces very, very, very little heat. It produces very little warmth. Our job is not just to reflect. It's more than being a mirror. And that's a good thing when we, and it's a good analogy, I think, when we reflect God's character. That's what the Beatitudes are about. When people look at us, they ought to see those who are poor in spirit. They ought to see those who mourn. They ought to see those who are meek. They ought to see those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They ought to see those who are merciful. They ought to see those who are pure in spirit. They ought to see those that are peacemakers. They ought to see those that are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. They ought to see those things that's true. They reflect the character of God's people. But it's more than that. It's more than that. You see, when people, when, when I look in a mirror and then somebody else looks in the mirror, they see what? They see my image. They don't see the works that I produce. So it's not enough to be a mirror. It's not enough for people to see that we're like God. What God wants them to see is action. He wants them to see what we do, the good works on his behalf. He wants us to be holy, but he wants us to act that way as well. So how do we do this? We do it by performing good works. Jesus did this. Why did he do it? Jesus performed miracles and good works for three reasons. To glorify God, we should glorify God with our good works. He did it to help people, to help people and draw them to the gospel, help them practically and draw them to salvation. And we should do the same thing. We should do, use our light for that reason. He also did it to communicate and to validate the message of God. And we should too. So our good works ought to accomplish those three things. They ought to glorify God. They ought to help people and they ought to communicate God's good news of salvation. So what are these good works? What are these good works that he's talking about? Well, first of all, behaving consistently with the Beatitudes that we have just described. 
And then the rest of the sermon talks about obeying his directives. The good works are anything that fulfills the law and the prophets, that completes righteousness, and is not self-righteousness, and ends up summed up by the golden rule. That's what he's talking about, good works. So what is our purpose in all of this? The ultimate goal is what? People see our good works, yes, but it is, of course, to praise the Father in heaven. Jesus did this. His purpose was to do the will of the Father and to glorify Him. And so when He did miracles time and time and time again, you see that people glorified God. See, they got it. You know, sometimes we get, maybe you don't, but sometimes people might get a little concerned that when I do a good work, I don't want to draw the attention to me, but, but, I, but I want people to know that God's at work. Don't worry about it, folks. Don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit's at work. The Holy Spirit is at work in causing you to do good works, then the Holy Spirit is at work in the people out there, and He will open their eyes to see that it is He that is at work, just as they did with Jesus. We are called to do those good works. Don't hide your light, He says, basically. You're to shine. What does this mean? Don't hinder God's purposes. What are God's purposes? To help people to glorify the Father so that they will be drawn to Him. You see, if we hide our light under a bushel, if we hide it under in the, in the cellar, if we hide it under a bowl, we thwart God's purposes. We thwart His intention to help people, for Him to be glorified so that He can draw people to Him. You know, there are a couple of problems here, I think. How do, you, how do people hide their light under a bushel? One is through false humility. Humility in the way we do things is a good thing. It's noble and it's right. It gives God all the glory. But humility that prevents us from acting is not humility. Let me say that again. Humility that prevents us from acting is not humility. It's timidity. It's lacking confidence that God can work through us. It's usually an excuse for inactivity and spiritual laziness is what it is. There's another problem, I think, in hiding the, the, the light. And that is when we face opposition, people become silent. Well, folks, that's not just silence, that's cowardice. It is being so fearful for our own safety and our lack of trust in God to vindicate us and to protect us. We need to be reminded that we should not let the world intimidate us, for the Satan cannot take away your salvation. But what Satan can do is he can try to silence you. And that's what he did with the three temptations that we read about earlier in Matthew, never be intimidated by the world, by Satan, because he aims to silence us. Don't be shy. Be bold about doing your good works. It's okay for people to talk about them as long as they give God the credit and praise him. It's a waste of time, folks, to, to once you do something, then to, you know, to make excuses and say, well, it, it wasn't I who did it, it was God who did it. That begins to sound like false humility. Don't worry, God will take care of that. Let me talk about a couple of other things, and that is the flow of light. The flow of light in this passage. You see, there's a direction and a flow that we see here. There is a surge of power that is compelling and irresistible generated by the Holy Spirit. It is in you begging to come out. And it flows from God's righteous being through us, and it produces righteous acts. This is the way the flow works. It flows from being the light 
already because we have walked in the light and we believe in him. Having the light to share with others and then doing it when God calls us to share it. You see that flow? Being the light first because we're redeemed and saved. Having it in such a way that we want to share it with others and then by doing it, by accomplishing God's will. It doesn't work in reverse, and some people try to do that. It doesn't work in reverse. Some people strive to accomplish good works. They work real hard, and that's their real focus. I'm going to do this and do that and do this and do that. And they usually do it as the Pharisees did it for their own benefit. So that they might possess the light and earn eternal life, hoping that they will become children of light by their hard work. That has it just completely backwards. You see, there are two possible ways to shine, basically. One is the right way, by God's grace. He fills us with his Holy Spirit, and by his grace, as we fulfill righteousness and do good things, he flows through us. The wrong way he talks about in Matthew 6, and that's through legalistic works of self-righteousness. There's another thing, and that is there's some tension in this passage and doing good deeds. You know, in Matthew, the sixth chapter, the question may be raised. He shifts gears a little bit later after he goes through the six antitheses. And he says, be careful that you don't do your works in public to be seen by them. If you do, you won't have a reward from your Father in heaven. And then he talks about giving to the poor and praying and fasting. What Jesus is talking about there is personal acts of piety. He's opposing self-righteousness. He's not saying don't do these things. He's opposed to those that are seeking worldly honor to be seen by men. In that passage, basically what he's saying is, do not use God. Do not use God to gain favor with men. You know, there, there's some things that are so intimate and so private, certain activities that we shouldn't flaunt publicly. We have public prayer, okay? But you know what I'm talking about. He talks about those that made a show of prayer on the street corners, about those that made a show of giving, those that disfigured their faces to show men that they were fasting. You see, what this does, folks, is it presumes upon God. We should never presume upon our private relationship with God to gain public notoriety is what he's saying. He's not saying don't do good works. Matthew 6 helps to inform the passage today, though. How do we do our good works? It's okay when we do something good and people recognize it as long as they give praise and honor to God. Our motive should be to glorify God, not to promote self. In Matthew 6, he uses this very graphic description. He says, when you're, when you're giving, do not let your what? No, no. Left hand, know what your what? right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, that's the way we ought to do our good deeds. Hmm. You see, it informs this passage. We should be so, so supernaturally in flow with God's spirit that when he tells us to do something, we don't think about, you know, are people going to see it or they're not going to see it? You know, what are people going to think? We just do it. You know, when he talks, to, talks about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, he says, you know, you sheep come into your inheritance because you did all these things. And they're going to say, but... When did we do them, Lord? And he said, to him, he said you did them when you served me. You, you served me when you did it to the least of my brothers. You see, that's the way our, our giving should be. That's the way our fasting should be. That's the way our praying should be. That's the way our good works of righteousness should be. 
We should do them in such a way to serve Him that we're even not mindful that there's a reward involved. Maybe not even realize how we have done them. You see, it's God working in us. So how do we handle men's praise? If they praise God for what we have done, this is acceptable. We've accomplished God's purpose. If they commend us, if they focus the light on us, if they praise us, we must repudiate it and reject it in a kind way. Jesus did this. In John, the fifth chapter, he says, I receive honor from no man. Peter, when he comes in and Cornelius then wants to worship him, he says, what? Peter looks at Cornelius and says, stand up. I'm a man just like you. When Paul and Barnabas then are at Lystra and they want to worship them because they have healed a man, they said, we're, we're men of like passions like you. We need to be reminded of that. Bring glory to God. Paul says to the Galatians, for I, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? You see, if I'm striving to please men, Paul says, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Let me apply this in closing. I think number one, whether we like it or not, folks, people are always watching us, aren't they? If they know you're a Christian, they're watching you. So you don't have a choice about their observing you. When you do your good works, they may praise you. You reject the praise, but they're, they're watching us. So we must always act in such a way that we do what? We must always act in such a way that we do what? That we bring glory to God and they praise him. Secondly, we must take a stand. Darkness is rolling in. We're approaching the end. The Lord is coming. The light must shine. That's the command. It must shine and roll back the darkness. And we're given this promise that the darkness will not overcome it. But remember this. In taking a stand, we not only receive recognition for our good deeds, we also face opposition. Thirdly, this is a simple point. Whatever we do, always bring glory to God so that he will be praised. Fourthly, we need to be faithful, always faithful, continually walking in the light, continually believing in the light, and ready in the long run. In other words, folks, we also hold this light in a lamp, and we need to keep the oil of God's presence ready and powerful. And you know the, word, you know the picture here from the parable. We need to keep our wick trimmed and ready, burning brightly and steadily, and we must stay ready because he's coming back and he will return. Jesus says in Luke, the 12th chapter, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like people who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Keep your light burning. Keep it bright. Last two points. Collectively, we're light. By ourselves, we're sort of like that song by Elton John. You know what I'm talking about. Don't you? Remember the song that he sang for Diana? What was it? You're but a candle in the wind. And the wind will extinguish it. Christmas Eve. We'll come in here. We'll have our Christmas Eve service, which is on Sunday. And we will do what? We'll take one, one candle. 
I don't know who's going to hand you the candle. It may be me. It may be one of the deacons. And that one candle is extinguished very easily. And it doesn't give a lot of light. But you know what happens. We spread the light. We spread the light. We spread the light. And all of a sudden, this room is illumined almost as brightly as it is in the daytime. We must be more than a candle in the wind. Rely on one another. Be connected. Stay together. Pray for one another's light. Encourage one another. When you see somebody else's flame beginning to flicker and almost go out, be of encouragement for them. Pray for them. When you see them almost being extinguished, come alongside them and let the power and the Spirit flowing through you, the Holy Spirit, re-energize them. And then finally, we're called to be lamp lighters. (laughs) You know what I'm going to say. We don't just poke holes in the darkness. You know what the expression is. We punch holes in the darkness. We are torchbearers throughout this community and this nation. Like Jesus, we're light of the world while we're in the world. But we're more than torchbearers. You see, there comes a point when, like our brother Lloyd Elder, we will leave this world and we're no longer lights in this world. So we have a responsibility to be lamp lighters as well as torch bearers. We need to light other people's lights so that they can pass on the torch. You see, disciple making in one respect is being more than torch bearers. It's being lamp lighters and passing on the light. Would you pray with me? Father, as we sing your wondrous story of your son Christ who died for us, who left his home in glory for the cross on Calvary, we sing a wondrous story because we have a wondrous song to sing. We have more than a little flicker of a flame to share. We have the great light of our Father, you, who has made us in your image to shine forth and bring the gospel of peace and hope and light to a dark and dying world. May you hold us to be faithful as we go forth and to help roll back the darkness and await your coming with our lights filled with oil and our wicks trimmed and burning brightly as a witness to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.